Hello and welcome to Paperboys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. Every Thursday, we go to the source of the story to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. I'm your host, Charlie, and today I'm bringing in a paper about mass extinction. I'm your other host, James. I'm horrified by the topic of this, but I have plenty of questions. Don't be horrified. It'll I'll be gentle, James. <laughs> We're both PhD students, and we read a lot of papers for our own research. So this podcast is our way of sharing our love for science with anyone else who wants to learn about discoveries that affect all of us. We are the Paper Boys. All right, so the topic today is mass extinctions. Where did you hear about this? Well, this has actually been kind of all over the news in the past few days. And so I, I dug up the paper. And actually, today, our grad student highlight at the end of this episode is going to be from the first author on this paper, Justin Penn. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So after we go through all the research, you can hear kind of what he does for his actual research. Well, the, I mean... <laughs> You'll have heard throughout the episode, but you'll hear a little bit more about him and, and why his research is important to him. That's great. Can't wait for that. So this paper came up in the news, like I said, because it had some dire consequence warning kind of undertones to it. But essentially, the gist is that these researchers studied a mass extinction event that happened about 250 million years ago called the Permian-Triassic Extinction Event, otherwise known as the Great Dying. Ooh, that is horrifying. The Great Dying. Pretty it's hardcore a, name. Right up there with the Great Depression, <laughs> Great Dying. Yeah. Uh, one of those historical events you don't want to be a part of. Uh huh. So how... I have so many questions. So many questions, Charlie. So maybe you can sort of set the stage for us. I don't even know what was happening 250 million years ago. Were there dinosaurs? Were there no dinosaurs yet? What's walking around? What's dying? I think there may have been dinosaurs then. I, I don't know, but whatever was there, most of them died. <laughs> <laughs> so here, well, let me give you some of the quick news headlines on this, just so you can kind of get a sense of where I picked it up. Um, so the Independent said, Great dying, biggest ever mass extinction triggered by global warming, leaving animals unable to breathe. Ooh, sounds not pleasant, right? Yeah, not how you want to spend your Saturday. New York Times said, the planet has seen sudden warming before. It wiped out almost everything. Dun, dun, dun. It doesn't get more ominous than that. Yeah. Now, you know, more, so more focused on the science here. Science News said, volcanic eruptions that depleted ocean oxygen may have set off the great dying. That's informative. So some volcanoes were exploding all over the wor world? Yeah. So let me give you a little bit of background on this great dying extinction event. So I went to the Wikipedia page about it, which is very informative. <laughs> so go check <laughs> that out if boy. you can. Yeah. Such a paper boy. This is my high level of research going on. <laughs> so in the great dying, which, which like I said, happened around 250 million years ago, and it was the event that marked the separation between the Permian geological period and the Triassic geological period. And this extinction event was caused by, as I gather, there were these volcanoes called the Siberian Traps. Hmm. It was like this region in what is now Siberia that had all this volcanic activity. And over the course of like 300,000 years, these volcanoes were very active and they spewed tons and tons of, of magma. But more importantly, they spewed tons of CO2 and methane into the atmosphere. 
Oh, wow. And so they raised the content of the atmosphere with these greenhouse gases. And then it led to this runaway greenhouse effect, which warmed the earth, which then warmed the ocean waters, which then caused a massive dying of species. It's like the dinosaurs were just driving too many pickup trucks. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, if you think about it, the dinosaurs are driving the pickup trucks now. Huh. Yeah, you're right. That's where we that's get our right. oil, right? <laughs> that is a weird, weird twist of fate. Thanks a lot, dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, but so in the Great Dying, 96% of all marine species died. N- 96%? 96%. Are we talking, do you know if this is the volume of species, like the actual numbers, or like 96% of the total species just went extinct? 96% of the species went extinct. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And then 70% of terrestrial vertebrates died. So all the animals on land. Just. Yeah. And it's also, um, this is apparently the only known mass extinction event for insects. Really? Which is really interesting to me. I'm, hey, I'm, I'm impressed that they've been around that long. I didn't actually realize that insects were around back then. They were probably a lot bigger and scarier back then. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everything was a little bit bigger and scarier. I know. Wow. So the insects went, they're pretty robust. Yeah, well, apparently. I mean, I know that there's been tons and tons of mass extinctions throughout the history of Earth. I didn't realize that like, that had never happened for insects. So that's kind of interesting. A uh, period that we'll never forget. So th- what this paper then, well, here, so let me tell you, the title of the paper is Temperature-Dependent Hypoxia Explains Biogeography and Severity of End Permian Marine Mass Extinction. It was published in the December issue of Science Journal. Um, And there was an article in Science Magazine about it. The authors are Justin L. Penn, Curtis Deutsch, Jonathan L. Payne, and Eric A. Sperling, who come from a couple different labs. They come from the Department of Oceanology at University of Washington, I think the Department of Biology at University of Washington, as well as the Department of Geological Sciences at Stanford University. Okay, nice. Mix of institutions. Nice to have a hometown, hometown author. That's right. Yeah, University of Washington. Go dogs. Go dogs. So they were motivated to write this paper because obviously this being the largest mass extinction event in history that we know of, there's a lot of research that goes on around it and trying to understand why it might have happened. And so one of these theories is that the Siberian traps released all this greenhouse gas. And that theory had been hypothesized for, you know, like 10, 20 years. This is something that's been in the literature already. But there was no real connection between this environmental change and the actual collapse of the biodiversity. Like that was still a really debated issue. Hmm. Interesting. So prior to this, people hadn't really understood that having this large influx of greenhouse gases could actually cause an extinction. Like that connection was missing? Well, they understood that one could cause the other. The jury was still out on whether that was the precise cause for this extinction. Oh, so there was okay. a variety of other causes that were proposed. Like it could be So high ocean temperature is sort of what this paper is looking at. But then there was also things like ocean acidification or sulfide poisoning in the water. There's a couple of things like that that are also theories surrounding the great dying. But this paper wanted to look specifically at the cause of rising ocean temperatures and then a lack of oxygen in the ocean water, which is which was one of the leading theories. Wow. Okay. So that's scary because, I mean, those are two things that are we're readily observing currently. Over yes. the last hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, right? Yes. And that's sort of the importance of this study and why it's, I, th- I think, why it has generated a lot of major headline news is that it kind of bodes ominously for us because they're already starting to observe ocean temperatures are rising. 
Mm-hmm. And they're already starting to observe that the ocean water is losing its oxygen content. And so if you can point to the great dying and say, those two factors are what cause 96% of all species to die off, then we've got a problem on our hands. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and, you know, as you debate these issues in climate change, I think almost everyone agrees now that climate change is happening. It's just a matter of, well, what are the causes and what are the effects? Mm-hmm. So if you can point to an actual effect that happened in history and say very conclusively that it resulted from the causes of rising ocean temperatures, then you can hopefully convince some more people that maybe something has to be done about this. Yeah, yeah. It also, I mean, just thinking about this recently, because, I mean, it's been in the news forever. I mean, since I can remember people talking about it, but also looking at the situation of things warming up and, you know, the increased acidity of the ocean, it's like, if we're already witnessing these effects, what is even in our control anymore? Oh, yeah. Is it all, you know, you talk about a runaway greenhouse effect. You use the word runaway for a reason, like we may not be able to stop it. So, yeah. So I'm curious, did they give any sense of the timeline over which this occurred? Like what sort of duration? You mentioned the volcanoes had been erupting for 300,000 years, but for the actual increase in temperature until it reached that runaway, do they give any hint of that? Yeah. So they don't talk too heavily about it in this paper, but they do make sort of the important distinction that the cause of the ocean temperatures rising then is not the same as the cause now, but the ultimate effect is going to be the same. So they say that even though those volcanoes released more overall CO2 than we will ever release from fossil fuels. This is actually from a different article I read, but even though they released more than we'll ever release, we're still releasing at a higher rate than those volcanoes released. And the magnitude of the change of ocean temperatures is projected to be not too far off from what happened back then. Wow. Yeah. So we'll get to those numbers in a little bit. I want to talk about how they did this study. Okay. Their their experimental methods. Yeah, so the overall summary of what they did for this paper is that they simulated this global warming effect across the transition between the Permian and Triassic using like a model of the Earth's climate. And then they took traits of existing species today and how they react to oxygen levels in the water and predicted how many of those species today would die off if you saw that type of change. Um, And then they compared that prediction with what is observed in the fossil record to see if their prediction matches what actually happened. Hmm. So first aspect of that was this model of the Earth's climate. They use this thing called Community Earth System Model, which is like this big control volume model of the atmosphere, the ocean, the land, and sea ice on the planet. And then they, you know, take equations of continuity and momentum and energy, which you can kind of Google this stuff. Equations that dictate conservation within a system. Yeah, and it, and it dictates the, the exchange of energy, essentially, between these different systems. Okay, between the air and the water and the incoming sunlight, etc. Right, and they started this simulation of the Earth's climate at this equilibrium that had a very low greenhouse gas content that simulates what they see in the geological records for Earth in the Permian period, which it turns out is actually very similar to what our climate today is. Really? Yes. Okay. And then they took a period of 3,000 years where they just like instantly added a lot more CO2 to the model. And so this is sort of, it's not a direct analogy to how the CO2 would have been added, but I think that it works fine because as long as you're going to then, they ran it for 3,000 years until the point where it reached a new equilibrium. Okay. And so the equilibrium states is really all that you care about. And this is like a technique you can use in a whole variety of different modelings 
especially when you're using a, a control volume model like this. This is what I do in my own research, so with plasma physics. So Okay, so these methods are very applicable through many different fields. Right. So all that really matters is the two equilibrium states. So they start with one equilibrium that they know is what it was before, and then they add a bunch of CO2 and they find the new equilibrium where everything is warmed up and mm -hmm. it matches the states that they observe in the geological records for the Triassic period. And so they find that through this simulation, they match those two climates. And then with the change between those, they went through and observed what effects these had on the oceans and on the marine life there. So the first thing, oxygen loss from the ocean water, and they, they refer to this as like anoxic water, which I think is a, is a phenomenon in oceanography where the water is depleted of its oxygen content. So they found that based on this greenhouse gas heating, the ocean temperatures rose by like 11 degrees Celsius. Whoa. Yeah, which is a lot. That's a lot. That's insane. That's almost 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. Whoa. I mean, that would be like a very, very noticeable difference even to just go like swimming. <laughs> yeah, I Let mean, alone it's great, great for swimming, bad <laughs> for marine life. Right. And so this raise in temperature, what happens is that oxygen doesn't dissolve into the water as well at higher temperatures. And so it actually will get released from the water. When it oh, heats up. interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And then there's another effect, which is that as the water heats up, the animals living in the water have a higher metabolic activity. And so they actually require more oxygen to survive. And so they're using more of the oxygen in the water. So it just pushes them very quickly out of this stable state to where right. they just don't have enough oxygen anymore. It's like a, the, another like runaway effect here where there's less oxygen, but they need more and so they're depleting the oxygen faster. And so you end up losing a lot of oxygen from the water. And what they found is that the marine oxygen inventory depleted by 76%. Wow. Yeah. Over that 3,000-year period? Uh, between the equilibrium before and the equilibrium after. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So it just so the ocean, 3,000 years after they injected all this carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas, just essentially could support only a quarter of the life that it had before. Well... In terms of oxygen limits. Support... A quarter of the oxygen it had before, but the implications for life are way worse. That's true. I mean, think about it. If you if, lose the species that are fed on by other species and... Right. I mean, it's not a linear scale with how much oxygen each species requires. If, mm -hmm. if you lost 75% of the oxygen from our atmosphere, every person would die, not 75% of people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like that division mentality of like, they talk about it a lot in like project management, like, you know, it takes one woman who's pregnant, nine months to deliver a baby, but you can't deliver a baby in one month with nine women. Oh, yeah. That's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I've never heard that before. That is horrifying, though. Yeah, but that's a really interesting question that you bring up about how many animals would die off as a result of this, because that's the very next thing that they go into. And they can like, okay. actually quantify it based on how much oxygen a given animal needs to live. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So they have this thing called the metabolic index. And my understanding is it's essentially a ratio of the available oxygen supply to the metabolic demand of oxygen. Hmm. And I think the like steady state, basically like inactive state of like, it, like imagine like a hibernating animal that doesn't need to do anything. It just like needs to sit there and not get eaten. I'm just imagining this floating fish. Right. That's a ratio of one. Okay. But in order to do like actual activities like reproduce or defend yourself or go eat food, anything you need to actually survive and, and perpetuate your species, 
you need anywhere between a ratio of 1.5 to 7. Wow. That means that you need an oxygen supply seven times higher than what your like resting metabolic demand actually is. So that number of like needing to survive is, you know, let's say it's seven for your species. Mm -hmm. They call that the critical ratio. Okay. And so as that amount of oxygen comes down from, you know, you're reducing, you're taking out 76% of the supply. The actual like physical limit on that ratio is going to come down until the point that it actually goes lower than seven and it's going to go lower than six and it's going to go lower than five. So anything that has those higher ratios is going to, their species is going to die off. Wow. So it's like. And I guess in the meantime, too, your minimum need is going up. Or is that what they defined as a ratio of one? Because they were saying, like, as the ocean level heats up, the metabolic rates of these marine animals is going up as well. Yes. So it's like they're converging on each other. That's the compounding in, effect, yeah. In the bad sense. Yeah. Like, when you go up, you probably heard this, like, people going up Everest. Like, as the air gets thinner, your resting heart rate goes up until a point where your resting heart rate is your maximum heart rate. And that, like, oh, wow. You just can't even move anymore because that's crazy. You don't have enough oxygen in your blood. Yeah. So I imagine it's a similar thing where you have these two, com these two compounding effects. So not only is your critical ratio getting higher as the oxygen content or as the water gets warmer, the oxygen content is also getting lower, which is dropping the available ratio in the ocean. Jeez. Yeah. And then I imagine this is only compounded too because it's like, I have no idea how this spreads through the ecosystem or like the hierarchy of what's eating what but like if yeah you now have to expend more energy to find something to eat then it's like you just lost 10 times worse yes <laughs> basically i mean yes. to put it in very dumb terms no that's not dumb terms at all they say that in the paper okay because they do an examination later so this talks this is talking about like the global oxygen loss from the ocean but then after this, they go into they go into habitat loss, which has to do with this this ratio. Then the next thing that they do is talking about like regionally, based on mapping this ratio in specific locations, they can see like, well, this percentage of the population would have collapsed, but we saw a higher percentage collapse in the fossil record. That discrepancy could be explained by like a food chain effect, like what you just described. Okay. And so do they have like a continental model of the earth during this period? Like Yes, so they, they can look at okay. Yeah. Based on the fossil record in different locations, etc. Yes. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's pretty neat. I would love to see a graphic of the simulation as it's running. Yeah, they have a cool little like summary graphic that was really confusing when I first looked at it, but then after reading the paper it made more sense. So I'll show oh, it to neat. you at the end so maybe it'll make more sense to you. All right. But interestingly, so when they look at this critical ratio and the decreasing ratio in the water, then they took 61 modern species that sort of represented like a full diversity of the oceanic life today, and mm -hmm. they calculated their critical ratio. And then based on the simulation, they saw how many of these species would die off by the water going below their critical ratio. And they found that of all species that have sort of like an average ratio, you know, ones that don't demand like a massive amount of, of oxygen or ones that don't, you know, sit there and do nothing all day, just kind of the average animals, 90% of those would die off. Whoa. From this warming. And so just to bring this back into the context of what we were talking about, this means like this isn't necessarily even talking about like the food chain effects or those other higher level effects. This is just your minimum ratio going higher and the amount of available oxygen going down. Right. This is purely like you personally do not have enough oxygen to survive. Wow. Yeah. Not that like there's not enough food left for you to eat. That's insane. And then they find that across all of the different ones, 95% of them experience a population decline of at least 20%. Which is up, huge. Up to yeah. 100%, you know. So 
Wow. It's just, you know, this decreasing oxygen content alone already explains just a massive drop off in marine life. Dang. So now here's where they get into what I thought was the most interesting part and what the authors themselves sort of describe as like the real significant finding of this study. It's kind of, this is like the smoking gun of their, of the oceanic warming and anoxic water theory. Wow. So you mean there's more? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that just explains like globally that you would lose this much stuff. Now what they do is looking at it geographically of where this extinction would occur more severely. They found this pattern where species are more would be more likely to become extinct at higher latitudes. Okay. So in the tropics, hmm. the marine life was more resilient to a depletion of oxygen in the water. And my understanding of this is that so already the tropics are warmer than the polar water is and the animals that live there are therefore already suited for this higher metabolic activity and a lower oxygen content so if you imagine all of the water gets hotter they can just sort of migrate a little further north to waters that are normal for them oh okay whereas these animals that live in this very cold oxygen rich water near the poles if the water gets warmer they don't have anywhere to go they just have i see they're quickly just squeezed away from their habitat and their climate Right. And so they just die off because they don't have any sort of refuge for this. Interesting. Does the, in the simulations that they ran then, did they find that the poles were affected more than the equator in terms of temperature rise and like general rate? Actually, yes. So they have this map that shows the change in temperature according to latitude, or actually, I mean, they have it as like a world map essentially of what the world looked like at the time. And you can see like there's these dark red, it's like dark red meaning higher change in temperature at higher latitudes. And then near the tropics, it's much, it's more mild, mm. um, which, which is, is interesting. It's interesting to hear that they analyze, you know, a, a group of different species. But, I mean, this could be playing out much more drastically in different parts of the earth. Yeah. Now here's where the smoking gun is. This is what's Ooh. really cool. So they've, in their simulation, they found that, right? Higher latitudes, higher extinction. Mm-hmm. Then they reached out to this group at Stanford that is a geological sciences department. So they have this whole database of like a fossil record, essentially. And so they had the people at Stanford make a fossil record based on latitudes of extinction from this great dying event. And they sent them that data and it almost perfectly matches what their simulation showed. No way. Yeah. So let me show you the graph. So this graph here is showing, you know, as a function of latitude, what is the percentage of, of species that went extinct? And you see there's this dip, like a U shape at the lower latitudes. And then the red data points here have that same dip feature in them. That's nuts. So this gives a bit of credence then to their model to say that their simulations are probably pretty accurate. Yeah, this is why this study is so important and why it is like a really big step forward for this theory is that it is like the most quantitative showing of a cause for the great dying event that has ever been presented. Like there's been lots of, you know, I think from what I gather from at least the way they've described previous research is that it's somewhat qualitative. It's saying, well, all these different things happened around that time. And we know that these effects cause species to die off. So that could be a reason. But this is the first time that they've really had like this perfect match between a simulation and an observed effect and said like, look, this kind of shows you that this effect beat out all these other proposed theories. Wow. I know we, we talk about this a lot on the podcast because we bring in, you know, so many different varied papers from different fields, but it's really cool to see this scientific method applied in paleontology and ocean sciences and sort of the long history of biology on the earth. 
you know, you come up with a simulation and like for engineering, you come up with a simulation and then usually there's a pretty easily to measure physical quantity that you compare it to and you say, right. hey, this is how well my simulation went. That seems like it takes a lot of creativity to come up with an experiment of that sort where you can run a simulation and have some sort of experimental like fact to compare to to actually validate your model. Yeah, and let alone that you're simulating something that happened 250 million years ago. Yeah. It's one thing when you get to perform the experiment right there in the lab the day after you made your simulation mm-hmm. and compare the results. This is like they made this simulation and it like it was already long confirmed that so this variation in latitude had already been observed before like they'd already shown that with the fossil record and no one really had a good explanation for it. Really? So the fact that okay. this model came out with that data is like boom, like problem solved, you know. Wow, we I nailed mean, so- it. So this is a huge finding. Yeah, it's everyone it's, in the in paleontology and ocean science who are studying that. Yeah, and uh, there's actually in one of these in one of these stories, Curtis Deutsch, who I think is like the person who runs the lab. He said that when they saw the Stanford data about the fossil record and compared it to their model, he said this was the most exciting moment of my scientific life. Wow. Yeah. That is so cool. This is like one of those studies where probably somewhere on Wikipedia now, maybe on the Great Dying page, there's like a one sentence with a little citation and it's like, they are the reason that that sentence was added. Yes. To explain it. That's the the, dream. Yeah. Like one of those National Geographic shows, like talking about like, and before the dinosaurs emerged, there was the Great Dying. Like this will go in textbooks, you know? Yeah. They'll be able to definitively say like in the part about the Great Dying, they're like, well, as they lost oxygen, it became harder for them to live, and this affected the poles more than the tropics. And like, boom, it's, you know, answered. Yeah. Dude, it's the dream. I mean, it's the dream of every academic scientist, right? Yeah. That's, it's really cool. It's That's really cool. So cool. For those of you who are not in academia or research, trust us, it is super exciting. I know. We probably sound like <laughs> the biggest nerds right now, but, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, like, people get awards for. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope yeah hope to find out someday so the only kind of thing that i didn't really understand here was that they're comparing this model to the fossil record mm-hmm. and if the theory is that these animals that survived better in the tropics were just able to move to colder water closer to the poles as like the overall ocean temperature rose mm-hmm. then why is it that you still see a lower extinction percentage in the tropics if they were if if they were sort of moving away, then wouldn't you see less of a fossil record there during that time? Oh, like you'd almost expect this like big migration. Yeah, it's interesting that you still see like the fossil record shows these animals survived the tropics despite the fact I that see. they went up in temperature. Yeah, that's tricky. I wonder. Maybe there's also like some species who remained and just adapted, or yeah. maybe they like lost the number, and so you just see fewer extinctions. Yeah, maybe it's. Maybe that's my misunderstanding of how they survived. Maybe it was more that they adapted and stayed than it was that they migrated. Ah, oh, it's interesting. Yeah, but I saw, that's you know, I saw at least one source that was saying it was a migration, and that's kind of what my understanding was, but they don't explicitly say it in the paper, so I think maybe the news article and myself just maybe misunderstood. That seems like a tough question to answer looking back 250 million years. I know, right? God. I'm sure there's like a whole a whole another science about how you inter- you know, interpret fossil records. So, yeah, I mean, if they went to like a consulted with a lab at Stanford just to get those fossil record numbers, that means like there are undergraduates, graduate students, oh, postdocs, yeah. professors, like just like a whole department. Yeah. A whole department. Yeah. yeah. 
That's who cool. I assume know what they're doing. So, <laughs> so you know, my question here is not the domino that's going to take this research down. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, if you are part of this lab and you're listening, please email us. To email us know. and explain it because I, I don't want to feel stupid anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Man, well, that's a fascinating paper, Charlie. I'm really glad you brought that one in. A, the science is just really cool to see how the scientific method applies to something on like this time scale and for an event that must be really hard to recreate because it happened 250 million years ago. You know, like computers were just being invented then. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they weren't even taking good notes. Yeah, they didn't even have cars, oh, I don't think. Yeah, but it's really cool and also obviously like very relevant to everything that is happening these days with the big debates. Like I'm worried about yeah. <laughs> what's happening. Yeah, it does. It is alarming. Uh, and that's kind of how they wrap up the paper too. Really? They have like a little discussion section at the end and they essentially say that this volcanic outgassing is pretty analogous to, you know, they use the very technical term anthropogenic climate forcing, which just means like human caused <laughs> climate change. Wow. So they say, you know, it's, it's an analogous thing, dumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And the results that they found in this paper with the rising ocean temperatures and depletion of oxygen are pretty consistent with what the models today are predicting are going to be happening in the next couple hundred years. Wow. Um, and so I think by the year 2300, the ocean is predicted to raise in temperature by like about half of what was observed in the great dying event. So I don't know, five or six degrees Celsius by the year 2300. Jeez. Yeah. And so, I mean, and this study showed there's a direct relation between the amount of temperature rise and the amount of extinction caused. I mean, it leads to a very scary prospect for the future. However, I'm going to take a stab at trying to find a silver lining on this. Okay. <laughs> All right. So bear with me for a moment. Let's say looking back that this great dying, you know, mass extinction, that's sad. Everyone's on board with that. But eh. <laughs> if this led to the dinosaurs, maybe this is a blessing in disguise. Maybe we are just bringing about the return of the dinosaurs. We could have a real Jurassic Park. What kid hasn't, yeah, what kid has not just dreamed of dinosaurs coming back? All right, let's go buy a couple Hummers. Yeah. <laughs> Start just filling them up, burn coal in the yard. I'm, I'm going to speed up this process. Yeah, we just want to get over the hump faster so we can have dinosaurs sooner. Yeah. That's logical. Yeah, or let's just take the heat straight to the ocean. <laughs> Pump, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is a very smart and not ethically horrible thing to do. <laughs> So now going back to the news articles on this, this was covered surprisingly well. Really? Given okay. how like hot button climate change is and that this kind of contained like a little hidden warning at the end of the paper, you'd think people could really like take this and run with it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, obviously some people did, but they were very responsible in reporting the science of this paper. Wow. Way to go, popular news. Yeah. So that independent article, great dying, biggest ever mass extinction triggered by global warming leaves animals unable to breathe. That's like a, it's a very good article. It sums up the research very well. It sums up the methods. It like tells the story of the science that the researchers wanted to tell. So we'll put that one on the website as like the, here's the one that you should read if you want to be informed on this research. New York Times, I did not like this article, I'm going to be honest. Really? Yeah. So the headline was, the planet has seen sudden warming before. It wiped out almost everything. First of all, I'm already like, I hate this new trend that all these outlets are doing where they have two sentences in the in the headline. Like, period. It did this. Period. You know, or like, uh, Trump said that yada, yada, yada. Period. It didn't. 
period. You know, like <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's becoming a little bit long winded. Yeah, and just and kind of this annoying, like it's a little clickbaity, and the, and so then reading through the article, you know, again based on my own little like bias against these annoying headlines, I was a little inclined not to like it, but still, it just seemed like it was kind of dumbed down a little bit, and it was very like almost patronizing to the reader, like it didn't really want to explain anything, and it like went out of its way to not use any sciency terms at all. Oh, okay. So they just pushed it a little too far. So, something about it just rubbed me the wrong way. But they did at least, it was at least very thorough. Like they interviewed a couple other researchers in this field or one other researcher in the field. And they also interviewed Deutsch, um, who's, you know, he, that's when he said, this is the most exciting moment of my scientific life. That's nice, at least, to at least get a couple different perspectives. and Yeah. So there was definitely like value in this article. It just was like not really what I think scientific reporting really should be. Like it wasn't very genuine to what the research really was. I mean, if they did, we wouldn't have a podcast. <laughs> that's that's true yeah so the new york times is out yeah so the new york times article not great and then there was another one mother jones which again i was kind of like expecting this one to be bad because the headline was a little clickbaity a new study about the world's worst mass extinction should make you very nervous for our future Ugh. but the article actually turned out to be fine they, like they're really hammering on the dire consequences of this like throughout the whole thing like every other sentence they bring it back to and by the way that's what we're seeing today you know <laughs> Okay. Um, but they still, you know, they cover the research well, you know, and at the end they just sort of had like one sort of misleading thing that I think was more of a mistake than like intentionally misleading. But they're talking about how bad it would be for ocean temperatures to rise by a certain degrees Fahrenheit. And then they have a quote from Justin Penn where he's talking about a certain degrees rise. But I know that he's talking about Celsius and they don't specify that. And so they oh. make, so they say, here's how dire 10 degrees Fahrenheit can be. And then Justin Penn, Penn says, we're going to see 10 degrees. Or no, sorry, they say whatever it is, you know, I, I forget the discrepancy, but they're kind of like using the ambiguity of degrees to make it sound worse than it is. I mean, yeah, that sounds like a minor deal, but, you know, we've talked about it on here before. It's how you crash $1 billion spacecraft into Mars. Right. It's like when you have a department that's supposed to be fact checking and yeah. you miss one fact, it's like, well, that's a failure of your fact checking. So yeah, and can be useful leading for like you want people to be able to come away with this with like the facts. Right. So from these articles, you read the news articles online and then the actual science paper itself. Has this changed your view at all on climate change or sort of the impacts or what the outlook is? I think it has, yeah. I mean, I am not a climate scientist. And so like it's really hard for me to really understand and like form such a strong opinion about all these things without truly understanding the science. And, you know, I've got my own research to do. I can't I can't just go and read all these things all the time. You um, can't become an expert in everything. Right. And like, it's important to always keep yourself informed and like well read. But the reality is that like, I just no matter what, I would never feel like I'm well read enough to like try to sound like an authority on anything, you know. Mm -hmm. But reading something like this, is a great way of putting it into perspective where like I can actually look at this mass extinction. Like that's a very clear thing. Like everyone died. <laughs> and then they say it was due to these effects, which are like very easy to show are happening now, you know? And so it, it sort of takes some of the complexity out of the matter and shows you very really that what's happening now could have this same effect that happened in history. Yeah. Yeah. Instead I of being this hypothetical, you know? From a scientific perspective, too, that must be neat from your side to see the methods that they use. And like you were mentioning earlier, like using the simulation techniques that are very familiar to you. 
right that right. must help like probably internalize what's going on right and again that's part of the problem is that because like i never went super out of my way to really read you know everyone's read the news articles but I've never really gone out of my way to read what climate scientists actually do. And so seeing the real method behind it and understanding, like being able to apply the same techniques that I'm familiar with demystifies it a little bit. That's great. I mean, hearing this makes me think back to Shark Week this year, actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, so a lot of these global climate change studies, it's hard to internalize, like you were saying, also because, you know, that we're talking about things that happen over a long period of time on a global scale. And you may not like actually see these things day to day other than like oh, exactly. it rained more today than it did last week. But there was this there was this neat thing on Shark Week, not to go off on a little tangent, but these divers, like they had a lot of experience diving. They wanted to recreate this scary event from World War Two where a ship was sunk in the Pacific and the sailors were like in shark infested waters. It's a really scary moment. Like they had to spend days in Whoa. the water and sharks would like eat them. Oh my gosh. So these guys wanted to spend like recreate a shipwreck and go in the water and spend like 48 hours just at sea just the two of them like no food or water or anything oh man really scary and they filmed it all obviously for shark week and discovery channel but what they were saying was like they saw some sharks yeah and they were trained to swim with sharks so like they knew how to handle it okay but they're like yeah the scary thing is there are way fewer sharks than we expected like the populations are already like dropping and they were really? talking about that in the show. And so... But, and it, I mean, so, like, that's kind of an example, though, where I'm like, that's hard to sell me on, you know? Yeah. Because you're just taking two data points. One of those data points is where there was a giant shipwreck with blood and, like, thousands of people for them to go eat. Yeah. The other is, like, two guys, you know? Like, the sharks aren't interested in two people. Well, I mean, sharks still came up, but they said it's just a lot harder to find them. And they talked about other things, too, not just climate change. But the fact that, like, we're overfishing and people kill the sharks. Yeah, yeah. But then, like we were talking about earlier, you can see how these different mechanisms would start to compound, too. It's like you get rid of these, like, natural species because we're overfishing. And then you put this extra burden of increasing ocean temperatures and decreased oxygen levels. So it's like there's already less food. Now you have to work harder to get food. Yeah. And you're stressed because there's, like, boats going over your territory. Like, you know. I'd be stressed if someone was like shaking my house and like every day yeah. boats by it. So you could start to, I guess I can starting to appreciate more and more every day and especially hearing the study that it's like, this could be like very catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Well, thank you, Charlie. Uh, that was a great article. Really good choice. It's always interesting to tie back Earth's history from 250 million years to the present day and realize how much things <laughs> repeat maybe. Yes. But um, with that, I'm really excited to get into our grad student highlight. For today. Yeah, today's grad student highlight is actually from Justin Penn, the first author on this study that we just talked about. So he needs no introduction. You're already quite familiar with, with what his work is on. So we'll just let him tell you about his research. Hey, what's up? This is Justin Penn. I'm a grad student in oceanography beaming in from Seattle, Washington. For this episode's highlight, I'll give a shout out to the places artifacts, and people that inspired our recent extinction paper. Number three, places. Medill Place in Los Angeles, California is the street of my childhood home. It wasn't until this year that I discovered a 1957 paper titled Paleontology and Stratigraphy of some Pleistocene Deposits in Northwest Los Angeles. Turns out my house sits on top of a marine fossil deposit from the Pleistocene. Were the fossils speaking to me? 
Number two, artifacts. The paper titled Emergent Biogeography of Microbial Communities in a Model Ocean by Mick Follows and Company from 2007. Although not directly relevant to our extinction paper, I read this one as an undergrad and it really opened my eyes to the possibility of using, o of using mechanistic ocean models to understand Earth's biodiversity. Number one, people. Carl Sagan, what's there to say? For the first time, we have the power to decide the fate of our planet and ourselves. This is a time of great danger, but our species is young and curious and brave. It shows much promise. UW Ocean Science Building, stop on by. I'll make you a cup of coffee. See you later. Well, thank you very much, Justin. Uh, we owe you a double thank you because this whole episode is really <laughs> exists because of you. So very glad that you could get on here and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Thank you, Justin. Well, thank you everyone for listening to today's episode about this crazy mass extinction. We hope you enjoyed the episode, despite it being somewhat dark. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please remember to subscribe and to follow us on social media. We have both Twitter and Instagram accounts Paperboys Pod. And you can also, uh, if you want to read the paper that we talked about today or any of the news articles, go to paperboyspodcast.com. All the links will be there. You can listen to the episodes there too in the future. And uh, reach out to us if you have any ideas in the future for an episode. We've had a couple episodes now that came on listener suggestions. So shoot us an email at paperboyspod at gmail.com. If you can't gleam from the fact that we're doing this podcast, we love to talk about it and we love getting listener feedback so if you'd like to continue the discussion if you have any points that you'd like us to know about please feel free to get in touch and join us next week for another exciting edition of paper boys thanks for listening